Hello. Hey. Welcome to Rosé and DNA. I'm Deanna. And I'm Renee. And we're two professionals working in the field of genetics. Okay, so it is our ninth episode of Rosé and DNA. It's really hard to believe that we're on number nine, but today we have the utmost pleasure of speaking with Dr. Janine Austin. Dr. Austin is a leading psychiatric genetic counselor studying how to deliver deliver personalized genetic information for psychiatric conditions to individuals. And Dr. Austin completed their bachelor's at Bath University and their PhD in neuropsychiatric genetics at the University of Wales College of Medicine in the UK before training as a genetic counselor at uh, UBC in 2003. And they first were appointed as an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry in 2007. And in 2018, uh, was promoted to professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Medical Genetics. And they also serve as a graduate advisor for the UBC Genetic Counseling Training Program. And if that wasn't enough, Dr. Austin in the past has also served as past president of the National Society of Genetic Counselors and as the Canada Research Chair in Translational Psychiatric Genomics. They co-authored a book called How to Talk to Families about Genetics and Psychiatric Illness, and they're a scuba diver, which I think is a really fun fact. Um, So (laughs) welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So before we get started and, and dive into the tricky questions, uh, we always like to start off by chatting about the wine that we're enjoying today while we chat. Um, so Renee, what are you having today? Well, um, because it is June, which means it is Pride Month, I was really fortunate to be able to stumble upon a LGBTQ plus producer um, that was offered through the urban grape which I feel like at this point every single episode I'm plugging the urban grape which is the (laughs) local wine store in Boston but they are just amazing Um, and so you can search um, for different um, types of producers so I was able to find a queer producer Um, the wine is called the whole shebang um, and it is a red blend or a cuvee which I just learned is essentially a fancy name for a red blend so it's lovely so far. I've just had a couple sips because it's only 2 p.m., but uh, yeah, it's a really nice uh, bold blend, but it's not too sweet, which I feel like sometimes with red blends, they can be a little sweeter, which I don't like. So it's a nice dry, really nice balanced red blend, and I'm loving it. Awesome. Uh, Well, today I am having a uh, rosé on brand today, Um, (laughs) and it's a rosé from Miraval Winery which is actually a winery that's owned by Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Um, So I thought it was fitting, actually, uh, you know, given that we're talking about genetics and uh, (laughs) things like that. Um, For for those who are listening and probably have no idea what we're talking about, uh, Angelina Jolie really um, kind of made a splash several years ago when she uh, underwent a prophylactic mastectomy after uh, genetic testing and uh, BRCA1 variant was found. So she was at risk for increased risk of uh, breast and ovarian cancer. So wanted to to try this one today and it's pretty good. It's, uh, I did do some Googling. It has uh, notes of red currant, mm. um, but it's, it's good so far. Janine, Dr. Austin. Oh, and, and me. <laughs> Um, please, Janine. Janine. Um, yeah, so, well, it's before noon here, and I have a full work day ahead of me, so I'm actually not drinking my favorite wine right now. But um, if I were, then I would probably be drinking um, a white burgundy right now. Um, it's mm. very hot, and um, yeah, I, I do like myself a good, nice white burgundy. Um, but alternatively, there's some. Did you know that BC has really good vineyards? Yeah, it actually does. Yes. So um, no, we have some really good wine growers here locally. Um, so lots and lots of really great stuff coming out of the Okanagan Valley, mm-hmm. um, and actually even on Vancouver Island. So one of my favourite uh, wineries is actually a place called Venturi Schulze, um, which is on Vancouver Island, and it's all organic and delicious, mm. and yeah, super fun. Mm. Well, we will have to add that to our growing list of wines to try. <laughs> All right. Well, shifting gears uh, a little bit. So something that we love to do with our guests um, is really to start digging into the roots, um, going back to your childhood. 
um, and, you know, the environment that you grew up in. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you were like as a child and you know, what your experience was growing up? So, yeah, no, um, honestly, when you asked me what were you like as a child, then the, what pops <laughs> into my head straight away is uh, mostly anxious and depressed. Um, but, but I didn't have words for that and I couldn't name it at the time and nobody knew that about me. Mm. Um, so outside, I think, you know, outside observers would describe me as things like so capable and responsible and, um, things like that. And I did well in school, but, um, I was <laughs> drinking and smoking and trying all sorts of illicit substances <laughs> way too young and, and, um, no, nobody really noticed basically. Wow. So, um, yeah. So, um, so, so I don't know, it was, it's a kind of an odd thing to talk about really, but, um, so I was born in London, um, in the UK. Um, as the first child of two and my mum stayed at home to raise me um, my brother was born six years later and he's one of those people that like super grateful to have as a sibling but super grateful to be born first because because <laughs> <laughs> you know whereas I had to like struggle really hard for everything he just aced anything he turned his hand to with like no apparent effort um, and if I'd been forced to follow that act well it wouldn't have been good basically um yeah, and, and I grew up in a, um, so we moved to Swansea, which is a small town in South Wales. Um, well, it's a it's a city of a quarter of a million people that feels like a small town. Um, when I was eight, because of my dad's job as a patent agent, um, he was actually the first patent agent in Wales. I didn't really see him very much growing up because he was working long hours, but he became super successful. And I think that that was one of the early influences that I had was just his example of like, um, strong work ethic and the relationship mm. between hard work and success. Um, my mum, my mum worked, I think, really hard to sort of give me the sort of confidence that she'd never had. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know. Britain, Britain is a super classist place. I don't know if you've ever been there, um, but Swansea, where I grew up, is a working class town. You know, capital W. Um, and so historically, most of the local jobs had been in like coal mining and steelworks and that sort of thing. And the working class culture there is like really strong. And the pride in that is really strong. So what that means in the end is that there's just this, I, I noticed it even as a child, even though I couldn't really put words to it. There's like, um, there's, a, there's a pervasive feeling of don't make too much of yourself. Like, why would you? What's wrong with what we have? Mm. Um, which is especially true for girls and women. Um, so there's a sort of a sexism baked into everything, really. Um, so when we moved there, I was eight years old. We moved from London and there was still playgrounds separated by boys in one girl playground and girls in the other. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty bonkers. And, um, and I perceived it all at school where, you know, the message, yeah, the, it was really strong, I think, for girls, this whole don't make too, don't make too much of yourself kind of idea. Mm. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. Is, is that helpful kind of as a, as a background piece? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> and thank you. For, well, first of all, thank you for your honesty in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, I think not a lot of us really, um, are public with, yeah, maybe some of you know, drug use, alcohol, alcohol abuse, things like that. And I think it's important to, to normalize that it's an experience that many people have, especially in adolescence when we don't have, as you said, those words to really identify like why we're seeking out those, you know, potentially dangerous yeah, exactly. behaviors. And thank you. That's exactly why I mention it. I think, you know, it took me years to realize that, you know, I'd always felt like shamed especially about the smoking you know because people have you know well, you're so clever you know what it's bad for you why would you do that but um you know and of course I did know that of course I did um but it's looking back in retrospect I can see a hundred percent that it was literally I didn't have any other coping mechanisms for the anxiety that I had and it was debilitating like mm -hmm. so you know, it, it was a way, not, not a very functional way, but it was a way of managing that. And um, so, no, I've forgiven myself, basically, for all of those, those things that, um, you know, it, it's, just, it's just ways of trying to manage what you've got, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And I, I think it's really interesting, too. You know, I'm imagining as a kid, you probably were not really realizing some of those differences that you were experiencing in your town. And um, you know, when you were saying a little bit about um, just not being encouraged to, to seek mm. more and really advance 
Um, was there sort of anyone in your life at that stage who kind of encouraged you and um, maybe motivated you to seek more and maybe even inspired your interest in science and the career that you have today? Yeah. Um, so, so if I'm being really honest, like not, not actually at school. I mean, I did, I did have one math teacher who was great. Um, she left sadly and abandoned me right before my final exams, which I, <laughs> not that I took that personally or anything. Um, but you know, at school I was, a, I was an absolute nerd, right. And I, I loved chemistry. It was my favorite thing. And, um, I was good at it. Um, but I had, and I had the same chemistry teacher in high school for like four years. Um, but whenever he called on me in class to, uh, you know, to answer a question, he would always go, nope, nope, don't tell me, don't tell me. And there would be a pause where he'd literally hold his chin in his hand and close his eyes and think deeply because he couldn't remember my name. And then he'd eventually say, my friend on bench four. And, um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that's a pretty good one. Um, yeah, so I mean, I got A's in all my chemistry exams, and I was so much of a nerd that I actually asked to do an additional exam before leaving high school to go to university. Um, wow. It's called an S level, like it's above a, an A level that you do in the UK. And um, he basically just dismissed me with no, I think he just didn't want to be bothered with the extra effort kind of thing. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, so my school was not somewhere that you're really going to find much in the way of inspiration for higher education. Most of the female mm -hmm. members of my high school class either had children already or were pregnant by the time they left school at 18. The first person in my class to get pregnant was at 13. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, so it really wasn't until I got to my PhD um, where I started finding um, like encouragement and inspiration and that sort of thing. So prior to that, I'd just been stumbling along from one thing to the another. another. Um, I guess another relevant piece of information is that like um, I'm the first person on my mum's side of the family to go to university at all. Um, and on my dad's side of the family, I'm the second, he was the first. Um, and nobody in my family had a graduate degree. So I'm the first person to get a graduate degree. So I didn't have very much in the way of like family-based um, direction or help in terms mm -hmm. of this. So I was literally just <laughs> stumbling along blindly, trying to, not really knowing what I was doing or where I was going, but just sort of putting things together. And, you know, I told you I love chemistry. I also really like biology. So what did I do at university? biochemistry you know <laughs> <laughs> and it was literally that degree of thought it was um but yeah. the bit I love best out of biochemistry was the genetic stuff and so that became where I focused my interests in the PhD area and then you know subsequently obviously the genetic counseling you know and so you you went to undergrad and then you went straight to a PhD program? Yeah, it's this really weird thing in Britain where you can do that if your grades in your undergrad are high enough, um, oh. which makes it sound like I was a super nerd, which, yeah. So yes and no, I suppose. So, you know, obviously that transition that you do from high school into university was brutally hard. Um, mm -hmm. And <laughs> I remember in my genetic counseling program interview, I got asked about my grades in my first year because there was like F's in there. It was bad. Um, and yeah, so it was literally like a sweaty palm, like nightmare, that interview. Um, but yeah, so, so anyway, my, my grades from my undergrad were just, just like literally, I think I was 1% over the threshold for being about to transition into a PhD. Um, so, so yeah, that was what I did. And it was again it wasn't so basically during my undergrad that was when I met my first genetic counselor I cannot remember her name um sadly but she it, so if you're out there it was 1996 <laughs> I was at Duke University in North Carolina where I was doing um like a it was like a co-op placement so I was there working in the lab of um Alan Roses doing Alzheimer's disease stuff and APOE and um, and I, I literally just heard the term genetic counselor and like many of us, you know, the things just clicked and I thought, oh, my God, that sounds perfect. Um, so when I finished my undergrad degree, I actually started looking into genetic counseling. Um, but 
at the time, there was literally like one program in the UK. It was in Manchester. And this was before the days of email. So I was like writing them letters and phone calls and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, asking them about, would you, you know, would I be a good candidate? And they basically told me no. At the time, they were looking for people who already had clinical experience, like nurses and so on, that needed specialist genetics training. And so I guess I wasn't really ready developmentally at the time to think about outside of Britain for training. So I kind of, I knew I wanted to do something with people and other, you know, people kept trying to push me towards medicine and that sort of thing. And I knew absolutely that was not what I wanted to do. Um, mm -hmm. So I did, <laughs> I did a PhD in human genetics, stupidly, like I laugh at it now, like stupidly thinking that, well, people who are training to be doctors, they get exposure to research. So if I'm doing research in human stuff, maybe I can get some clinical exposure, right? Naturally. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. If you're, if you're as, uh, you know, uninformed as I was, please know that that's not the case um, for anybody listening out there. Um, so yeah, my the closest I got to clinical exposure during my PhD was um, going to collect blood samples from people at the blood donation clinic for controls, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, so, but nevertheless, you know, nevertheless, it turned out that um, I absolutely loved my PhD um, because it was intellectually creative, which I didn't know mm. I wanted or needed. Um, and, and yeah, as I said, I think it was the first time that I actually, well, this is probably the best way to put it. It was the first time in my life I'd actually felt seen, like that, mm. that I was actually visible to people and that somebody in my PhD supervisor specifically actually seemed to recognize something in me and pushed me and challenged me to see what I was capable of which I responded really well to and absolutely yeah. loved basically yeah wow yeah well what would you say during that time was maybe the most important thing that you learned about yourself prior to even going to GC school I think it was that um Oh, this is going to sound so tragic, but that I did have, I did have worth and I did have value and yeah. that, um, and that the things that I was interesting, I was interested in weren't just some random, like things that only mattered to me, that, that, mm -hmm. that there was the potential that it could actually be important for other people too. Um, yeah. So I, I say like from a career perspective, that was the most important thing I learned. The other thing I learned about myself, of course, was that I absolutely love scuba diving. Um, <laughs> so, Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. <laughs> how did um, you, how did you stumble? So on? what happened there? So I, you know, well, you've heard about my family upbringing, so I, I was never in a position where I had tons of money or anything like that. But, and so scuba diving had always really appealed to me. Like I, you know, snorkeled and that sort of thing. But the idea of being under the water instead of just on the surface of it was just like, just felt like bliss. I would have dreams about swimming underwater and being able to breathe and that kind of thing. And um, anyway, so I was at university and my supervisor's attitude to everything was very much like work hard, play hard, uh, which I liked a lot. Um, and so I basically decided that even though I didn't have either the time or the money, I was just going to, just going to, sorry, I'm going to swear at some point during this interview. Oh, so. please. Okay, we're going there. PG-13 here. Yeah. <laughs> Might be 18, I don't know. So I just decided I was just going to fucking do it. You know, it was like there was never going to be a right time and there was never going to be a right, Just I just wanted to do it so badly. So, um, so yeah, I, I learned to scuba dive and it was, it was the best thing ever and it's something that I've continued with over the past 20 years, even doing stuff like wreck diving, cave diving. Um, wow. It's like my favourite thing for peace of mind which is odd I know for a very anxious person to be saying but yeah it's a, yeah, it's a would, thing so I would totally I don't I don't think I could do it I would feel like claustrophobic but is there good scuba diving where you are oh yeah so um actually BC was Jacques Cousteau's second favorite place in the world for scuba oh. diving yeah we've got incredible like invertebrate life here um so it's it's less so about the impressive fish and more about the sponges and you know yeah invertebrate stuff is so really cool. beautiful yeah 
So now that we know you're a scuba diver and your path to completing your PhD, we'd love to hear more about your role as a genetic counselor, uh, because right now you're currently leading research, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are meeting with patients. Um, and so I think some, some people listening might be confused what that means because they hear genetic counseling and they think um, that that always means um, interacting with patients. So can you tell us more about what the title genetic counselor means to you and what it represents? Yeah, so um, to me, I feel very strongly that, well, so if, so let's take it this way, right? Um, if we restrict the title genetic counselor to only those people who are providing direct patient care, we've lost half our workforce. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, snapping. <laughs> so um, to me, like, we get to claim the title genetic counselor if we choose to. If we've been through genetic counseling training and so on, like if that's the training that you've been through, and if um, for me, I identify as a genetic counselor because everything I learned in my training is stuff that I use every single day. It's I identify as a genetic counselor because what I'm trying to do is to, you know, definition of genetic counseling, helping patients to understand and adapt to the medical, psychological, and familial implications of genetic contributions to disease. That's exactly what I do. It's just that I do it as a researcher, right? And to me, research, we, we have everything to lose if we don't embrace the concept of um, research being important to genetic counseling. If we don't embrace the concept of genetic counselor-led research, um, because why do we do what we do in direct patient care? Like, we cannot just say, because that's the way we've always done it. Like, I mean, we can, but that's fairly useless, to be honest. Um, you know, isn't it nice when you can say, oh, we do it this way because the data shows that that's how you get the best patient outcomes, right? Because that's, you know, that's what drives pretty much all of us into genetic counseling is wanting to help people, you know, using a specific set of tools like related to genetics for sure. But, but we're all drawn into this because we want to help people in some way, way, shape or form with genetics. And that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I had people at the beginning of my career, um, you know, when I was, it was actually around the time I was um, being elected onto the board of NSGC. I had people say to me locally here, oh, well, you're not really a genetic counsellor, though, are you? Mm. And can I tell you how much that hurt? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's um, what? Why not? Why? What? What makes me less of a genetic counselor? Um, I I don't know. Is is the only way to be a genetic counselor by providing direct patient care? I really contest that. Like, it's about Mm -hmm. what you're trying to do in the grander scheme of things. Um, And Mm -hmm. I know I'm contributing to the development of the genetic counseling profession. I know that. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, why? Why should I not claim the title? Why should anybody who's working in industry, why should anybody who's not, who's wherever you're working, if that's how you identify, if you've been through genetic counseling training and that's, that's the mindset that you bring to the work that you do, it's yours to claim. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the profession is stronger because of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Mary Freivogel had her, um, in her incoming presidential address, she did this whole thing about, you know, hashtag, I am a genetic counselor. So, you know, um, which I, I love because it was about trying to bring some kind of like we're all, you know, we're all in this together kind of idea instead of fragmenting into a, um, you know, I'm a researcher and I'm a genetic counsellor. No, I'm a genetic counsellor who does research. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a genetic counsellor who does direct patient care. I'm a genetic counsellor who works in a lab. I'm a genetic counsellor who who works in an industry setting, um, whatever it is, um, they're all, they're all valuable. They're all important. They're all, um, fabulous perspectives that are going to take us to where we need to be. Yeah. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because we went to the NSGC conference in 2016, I think it was, and there was some session, I forget even what that was about, but someone was saying that students should get clinical training before they go into any other anything, you know, you have to do clinical work. 
And I remember being both of Deanna and I were sitting next to each other and we were like fuming because we both of us yeah. were in training. We wanted <laughs> to go probably into, you know, an industry role eventually. And we were like, what? Yeah. Well, what does this mean for us? And so I remember actually like standing up and I was going to make a comment, but you were actually at, you went to the mic and you were, you totally like <laughs> tore that <laughs> argument down. <laughs> And we were like, oh my God, thank God, because you were the president at the time. And I was like, okay, it's going to be much more well-received by the president of NSGC. But um, no, it, it really meant a lot, I think, to a lot of uh, trainees at the time to hear that like, you can be a genetic counselor, you can go through all that training, get that clinical training, but use it in new ways that doesn't necessarily Absolutely. have to start with a clinical role. Um, and I think that was honestly... No hugely transformative for many people in the field, existing genetic counselors to kind of challenge that stigma, but also trainees. So I think we yeah. always wanted to thank you for you know, standing up and saying that. Oh. Well, my absolute pleasure. Um, yeah. And so just to speak a little bit to my own experience with that. So, yeah. So I told you about doing the PhD thing, right. And then um, I didn't actually tell you very much about like why I went into genetic counseling yet. But um, just to sort of fill in that gap, because it's relevant to this exact question, it's, it's relevant to this topic, right? So um, basically, while I was doing my PhD, um, I, my parents, my family were asking me all sorts of questions about, you know, I was looking for genetic variants that make people more vulnerable to developing schizophrenia, bipolar, that kind of thing. And those are things that are in my family history. And so my, my parents, my family were asking me questions like, so is schizophrenia genetic? Like, what, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your brother? And, you know, and, and my, my PhD was me in a pipette in a lab, like, you know, just shuffling liquid from one vial to another. And I didn't have the language to be able to take what I was growing to understand and make it comprehensible or useful, even to highly motivated, intelligent people like my, my family. So mm -hmm. that, you know, I'd heard about the term genetic counseling in my undergrad, but doing my PhD and realizing that that term that I'd heard, this, this concept of genetic counseling, was something that would probably help to address those questions that my family was asking me. And maybe there were other families like mine that had similar questions. And when I looked around, I found that nobody was really systematically addressing those questions. So mm -hmm. basically, I, I, before I graduated from my PhD, I'd already started trying to do the prep stuff to get into um, a North American genetic counseling program. So I was doing some counseling classes on the side and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, so I came into my genetic counseling training knowing that what I wanted to do was apply it in the context of psychiatric illness, which nobody was doing yet. And so the, so this becomes relevant to the conversation we were just having about clinical experience, because when I graduated, my graduate advisor and many others around me, you know, when I told them what I wanted to do, look, you know, I'm, I'm graduating from genetic counseling training. I want to combine it with what I did with my PhD. I want to I want to do genetic counseling for psychiatric disorders, um, which, you know, at the time I thought it, I wanted to do direct patient care. But everybody said to me, and I'll never forget this one person in particular. No, 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 no. You want to get yourself a nice general genetics clinic job first for a couple of years, and then you can think about doing that sort of thing, right? And that just made, like, no sense to me whatsoever, none, because I was like, if I know what I want to do, I don't understand how a general genetics job is going to help me achieve that. How is it going to help me move towards that? And also, I'm, I have a very... Like, I only follow rules if they make sense to me, basically, <laughs> is the deal. Um, you know, so earliest example of that was getting my nose pierced at 15. Um, I was in school. There was very strict rules around that. And I did it and much to everybody's consternation, dismay, disgust, etc. Um, but that's and it's been on my face ever since I was 15. And I feel absolutely naked without it. And I think the reason is it was my first outward expression of trying to reject the script that I felt I was being handed, that I had to conform to, you know, the whole get married, buy a house, have babies, ideally right next door to your parents being this one, you know, like, and I, I didn't, I didn't want any of that. So this was my first little attempt at saying, 
fuck you. Basically. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> but but this stuff matters so much to me that it's like I can't talk about it in any other way. Um, so anyway, when this came up again in relation to the whole, you need a nice general genetics clinic job. I had the same response, the same reaction. I was like, well, clearly your advice is worth nothing, isn't it? I'm sorry, that, that doesn't, because it, it doesn't make sense. So yeah. I've never worked in general genetics ever. And in fact, I've never provided clinical care. I've never provided direct patient care. Um, I, I have always worked in research and actually, um, so when, you know, when I graduated from my genetic counseling program, I wanted to work in direct patient care. I tried to make myself a job for that, but basically people said to me either, well, they'd say a combination of things. They say, well, for, what's a genetic counselor, <laughs> first of yeah. all. And once we'd gotten over that and I'd explained, they'd say things like, oh yeah, that's very interesting, but there's no evidence that anybody wants genetic counseling for psychiatric staff. And even if there was evidence they wanted it, there's no evidence that it could be helpful. So bye-bye. Um, <laughs> And so that, that was really how I ended up doing research was because I had, I got hired by somebody who gave me an office and a computer and um, was working as part of a psychiatric research team. And uh, it was like, you know, my friend who met you for coffee and was bowled over by how you're, you're so enthusiastic about this stuff tells me I have to employ you. I don't know who you are or what you're doing, but go and do whatever it is. Um, so I went ahead and did some very sort of very low resource, let's say, um, very basic research stuff about like what do people believe causes mental illness and if I provide genetic counseling to this bunch of people who have kids with psychiatric disorders do they like it <laughs> you know like really you know you look back at the research and you kind of just like it's a face palm like it's actually kind of embarrassing because it, it's so not sophisticated but because it was nobody else was doing it it got published it was like novel and exciting anyway so yeah. So anyway, this guy that was giving me the office and the computer met with me after a few months to see what I was doing. And um, I, so I showed him and he was like, oh, oh, that's actually quite interesting. Oh, that's actually quite useful. Have you thought about trying to apply for grants? And that was how I became a professor. So, um, yeah, it wasn't on purpose. And um, yeah, I, I fell into it, didn't even really know what a professor was, even when I was one. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, here we are. But as it turns out, it's the best possible thing for me, you know, along the way, you know, I was able to establish this specialist psychiatric genetic counseling clinic where, you know, I could have, if I'd wanted to, left what I'm doing in research and gone and provided the direct patient care. But by that stage, I discovered that I, I don't think I would have been happy or fulfilled at all. Um, mm. So I hired some incredible people who that's what they do. And I'm sticking with my research stuff. Yeah. I think the thing that's so impressive is just how you were able to like advocate for yourself and really follow your passion, um, even though people were, you know, suggesting it's not the right path or you should take a different path. And um, I think that's something that gent counselors, but just anyone early on in their career does struggle with sometimes yeah, is yeah. advocating for your own passions and really stressing the importance of doing certain projects. Yeah. Um, and do you have any strategies or oh, advice um, that you've sort of picked up along the way for, for advocating for the projects that you are really passionate about and, and want to see happen? Well, I think so. So that, that really is it. Okay. Because that re that's very difficult. I wish there was like a, a golden bullet, silver bullet, whatever the phrase is. I wish there was something like that, but there isn't. But I think what, What's kept me going because, yeah, be, the, being a professor is incredibly privileged. Like, I, I am incredibly aware of that. Uh, but the process of making it to this point was, I'm just going to call it brutal. Like, I was straight, mm. flat out depressed for my first three years of being an assistant professor um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, how did I get here? Suddenly I'm responsible for people. I have a budget that's bigger than anything I've ever seen in my life before. And I have no clue what I'm doing. You know, I'm responsible for HR, finance. So it's like having a small business and right. I have no training for any of it. And, <laughs> and, but the responsibility felt enormous because the people I'd hired were spectacular. Um, anyway, so, so it was awful. Where was I going with this? Why am I, what, what question am I answering? <laughs> or not answering? Maybe. No, it, it's a whole background, but uh, we're curious if there were sort of strategies that you picked yeah, up right, along right, the right. way. Or yeah. Advice you have. Yeah. yeah. So, so 
basic, ba basically, I think really what it comes down to is that no, there isn't any single thing. But in the face of all of that difficulty and stuff that was brutal and made me depressed, what kept me going, um, advocating for the things that I wanted to make happen was that I knew it wasn't belief. I knew that what I wanted to do was important and was going to make a difference for people. Mm. If it mm -hmm. had only been about me or like my ego or my intellectual curiosity, I would have quit six months in. But mm. because I was absolutely certain that what I was trying to do was bigger than me, that it was that I could, if I could just, if I could just keep going, I would be able to make things better for others. That mm. that's what kept me going basically was knowing that, and again, it's not belief. It's, you know, it's not that faint. It's, it's absolute certainty that I was doing something that was right, even though others couldn't necessarily see it yet. You know, mm. I just had to try harder to convince people that, you know, I had to do better to convey my message. Mm. I knew I was right. So if they weren't getting it, it was because I needed to do better to convince them, basically, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. And as you know, this podcast is kind of here to advocate for gender equity yeah, yeah. Um, in the scientists in, in the sciences. Um, through that process, did you ever feel like there were times that your gender expression, your gender identity, affected like how hard you actually had to push for those things? Um, did that change over time as you've kind of moved your way up the ladder? I know it's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> so um, for anybody listening, because you can't you can't see my ginormous eye roll. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think we lost your irises for a full minute. I, I think so too. Yeah. So has my yes, it's affected literally everything, start to present, in yeah. ways humongous, tiny, uh, in ways known and unknown. It's incredibly pervasive, and it's super real. Like, yeah. um, you know, I told you about the example of being a chemistry nerd in school, right? You know, it's just not a thing that girls do. No, you're not going to get encouraged to do S-level chemistry. Who the hell do you think you are? Shouldn't you be off having babies now like half your classmates? You know, mm -hmm. that, so yes. And since then in science, I've been sexually harassed, locally assaulted by people at my own level or higher throughout my career and it's and that's in addition to the sort of more routine everyday experiences of being dismissed overlooked undervalued um ignored uh because of things that are related to my gender um mm. and of course you know i think this sort of thing is much more insidious now rather than sort of overt demonstrable discrimination stuff because you know things have tightened up a little bit so the problem is that nowadays when you talk about it people will argue it down well, you can't prove this particular thing is because you present as a woman. You're just being sour grapes about the fact that you didn't get blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And or being a hysterical woman, it's excuses because you're, you're making excuses because you're not good enough, you know? Um, but the fact is that academia is a white supremacist patriarchal institution. It's set up by and for white, abled, cishet men. And the more of those dimensions you deviate from, um, the harder it is to succeed in these structures. Um, and, you know, so, so yes, absolutely. I've, I've faced that every single step along the way. And I think one of my big frustrations is that, you know, we spend so much energy talking about, let's get girls into science. You know, we don't need to get girls into science. Girls love science. You know, at the undergrad level, it's 50, 50. The problem is keeping them in science because of all of these yeah. fucking like what is this leaky pipeline we get it's like people are getting harassed and you know like soul destroyed out of it because of all of this mm. bullshit you have to keep overcoming on a daily basis you know mm -hmm. um so so that's where our energy and our effort needs to be focused in my 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 very humble opinion yeah um mm -hmm. yeah you know yeah. I've learned some very useful stuff um recently about imposter syndrome um, yeah. You know, so I remember, so yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things that you, as you grow and learn, you look back on your past self and you kind of like grimace a bit, you know, so I remember talking about imposter, I think it was even part of my incoming presidential address, talking about imposter syndrome and how, you know, we need to recognize it in ourselves and, you know, because it's only by recognizing it, can we try to do things to overcome it, right, which is, 
you know, I stand by some of that. But what I've learned more recently is that sometimes imposter syndrome is genuinely just, quote unquote, like me down talking myself. It's it's me spontaneously just coming up with these negative views about myself. But other times it's not so much that it's actually a reaction to um, whether it's conscious or unconscious. You're becoming aware of the environment in which you're operating in in which you're devalued and dismissed and overlooked and that sort of thing. So it's not, it's, it's like, it's like gaslighting. It's not all in your head. It's real. It's stuff that's going on around you. So the phrases I've learned are about testimonial injustice and credibility deficit. And when I heard those terms in relation to imposter syndrome, it was like a light bulb going off again, you know, much like when I first heard the term genetic counselor, you know, that made things click into place. But the credibility deficit concept um, is about, you know, the, the fewer of those dimensions that we talked about, you know, that, you know, academia set up by and for white, abled, cishet men, like the fewer of those things that you get, you, you can check off, um, the more your credibility is doubted or diminished, right? So it's, it, that's my credibility de deficit, is that, mm -hmm. yes, I'm white, yay me, I've got, you know, in total, like if, if I want to fight in or play in this sound sandbox, that's what I've got. But right. I'm, I'm not cis. I'm not het. I'm not a man. Um, you know, so, I, I, you know, I am abled. I'm able to get, I yeah, had um, bilateral hip replacement surgery last year. Uh, prior to that, I did not feel very abled, I can tell you. Um, but um, yeah, so it's, it's um, yeah, testimonial injustice and um, credibility yeah. deficit were very important things for me to become aware of, I think, just in terms of... So I, I do think imposter syndrome as a, as a concept is important for us to know about because there, there may be some elements of it that we can act on, that we can have power over. But I think it's also really important not to gaslight ourselves, that it's not just you making shit up, that, that there's real mm -hmm. stuff that goes on in the environment um, that... that that tells you that you're valued less, that you're, you know, that kind of thing. Oh my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> that, I mean, we need to talk about this more. I Like, it's just so important because I think, like you said, so many people have this experience and it, you're so right. It feels like we're gaslighting, we're being yeah. gaslit, but we're also gaslighting ourselves. That's um, right. That's right. Yeah. So I think it's so important to take the take what we, you know, acknowledge that there may be some things that we have control and therefore power over, like, we have to feel like we have some control and power, but we, but, and, but to have control over the other elements of it, that's where we have to, it's the activism stuff. It's changing the structures mm -hmm. that we're part and institutions that, that make, make it inaccessible to people mm -hmm. who deviate from the able-bodied cis white man, you know? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, you know, speaking about your identity a little bit more, um, over the last couple of years, you, um, as you kind of just alluded to, you've come out publicly um, as both being pansexual. And then more recently, you put out a really important tweet uh, that you're non-binary or agender. And so in your tweet, you wrote, quote, hashtag GC chat community, I need you to know that I am pan and realized recently realized that I am non-binary agender. I publicly own my identity and hope that it helps other hashtag LGBTQIAGCs feel a little bit safer. We are here, we matter, and have important things to contribute. And I feel like we just needed to read that because I've read it over and over and it was just such a transformative tweet, I think, for a lot of people in our field because at this point you are a leader in the field. You are a voice that people look to. Um, and I think in particularly in light of, you know, the, some of the positive things that we read in the Exeter report that for anyone who doesn't know, this is a DAI, DEI um, survey that was done in the NSGC community. Um, but there were also some really harmful and violent quotes in there um, for from people within our community. And I think yeah. seeing you come out publicly saying, and owning that identity was just so important for queer people in our community. Um, 
But I also imagine there's a kind of a pull between you, you even in that thread said, I've historically kept a lot of things private. And so there might be a pull between, you know, wanting to keep some things to yourself, but also knowing that, you know, it's your responsibility to yourself, but also a responsibility to people who look, look up to you. To, so I, I just, what is that like, I guess, how, what was that like for you to, to write that and, um, you know, feel that? Lots of work and therapy behind it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, the whole like agenda realization thing was a long time coming. Um, yeah. So uh, so it was a long time coming, and then it was a. It took me a while. So I had already, of course, spoken to people that matter to me. Um, you know, personally, I'd spoken to lots of them about it. Um, but yeah, it the, the stuff in the Exeter report was just so painful, and some of the quotes from, you know, you know, colleagues who identify as LGBTQ about feeling invisible, you know, it was yeah. just, mm-hmm. and and as you've heard, you know, you heard my story, and I'm saying that I didn't feel seen and as yeah. as anybody of value until I was in my twenties when I was doing my yeah. PhD. So I that that pain I, I felt like I felt that personally. And I don't want that for anyone. I don't want that for anyone. So if there's anything that I can do to lessen that, I suppose, it felt like I had to. Um, You know, but there is a lot of tension there. Like, I am actually, in fact, an introvert. Nobody ever believes me when I say that because of the way that I present to the world, I suppose. Um, But... So what introversion means is that I get my energy from being alone or from being with very, very small group of, you know, very close trusted people. And, and if we're being brutally honest, any more than four is probably too many for me. And that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> unless I know them and trust them hugely. Right. Um, but but basically what I. I think the reason that people have so much of a hard time believing that is because when they see me it's because I'm doing something something public facing about which I care hugely. And so I, it's like I overcome my need for, for privacy um, because the other bit is so important. Like, so, so there is this conflict, there is this tension. Um, but when people, you know, I've, I've had really awkward encounters with people, NSGC and so on, where they expect me to, you know, they've come up to me in the bathroom or what have you and, you know, interact with me, expecting me to entertain them or like, you know, because that's who I am when I'm presenting on stage. But that's purposeful. Mm-hmm. It's not an act. It's part of who I am. But I'm channeling that part of who I am to ensure that my message is getting across, to ensure that I'm engaging people because what I want to do is leave the world in a better place than I found it. And if I'm up, up on stage talking about something, it's because I give enough of a shit about it that I want to, you know, so, so I'm not, I'm not going to be the same person as I am on stage. It's, it's not because it's an act. It's because I'm done. I, I've used all my energy and now I need to go mm-hmm. and hide in a corner with a couple of people I trust and just recover. Thank you. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, so there is a, yeah. there's a lot of tension. And that, so there's some resentment as well around like, why is it that we've constructed a society where I need to tell everybody who it is that I want to sleep with? Like, what the fuck is that about? Like, you know, why, why? It's just like when you actually think about it in those really blunt terms, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's just really weird. Like that. Why can't I keep that to myself? Why can't I just exist? Why can't I be, you know, what, why, why does it matter to everybody? You know, why, why do we put so much stock into gender identities? I don't even, you know, I think for a long time I thought that you know, my own internal experience of gender must be the same as what nobody really thinks it's a thing, do they? We just go along with it because, you know, (laughs) but it took me quite some time to realise that no, actually, some people do feel strongly, you know, masculine or feminine. And apparently, like, that's not me, but apparently some people do. And that might might be nice, perhaps, I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, realising that I was agender meant the end of a large number of recurring nightmares that I was having um, that had started again after a long gap. Um, I used to have them as an adolescent and then they resurfaced a few, well, a while back and um, yeah, talking about it all in therapy helped me realize what it was. And once I did, I was like, Oh my God. (sighs) And then started telling people and it stopped immediately. 
So it's, it, you know, it's cages that we put ourselves in and I don't really know why. I don't know what purpose it serves, what benefits it derives. Yeah. It's really like personally therapeutic for you to say that about the nightmares. I, um, so like over the pandemic, I came out as bi and, um, (laughs) yes, it was, I mean, seriously (laughs) though, what you're explaining is exactly what happened. It was like recurrent nightmares, like this anxiety. And then it was like, it said it and it didn't change anything. I'm no, exactly. I'm about to marry a man. Like it doesn't change anything, but having that out there was just and having it out there to the GC community yeah. is huge. Um, yeah. And I think it's going to, I've already noticed in like the generations coming up, it's making a massive difference in visibility and support community. Yeah. So I, yeah, just thank you for yeah. being so transparent about it. And I think that the more we do it, the the better it's going to be for everyone. Like it, no, it doesn't just help queer people, mm-hmm. it helps everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And, it, you know, I had exactly the same thing with the, um, I think in many ways, actually coming out as pan was worse because um, I did that in real life at a conference a few years ago. And I there was some session about I don't even remember what it was about, but I remember feeling like I had to I had to say something and like forcing myself to get out. My heart was like literally pounding out of my chest and, um, you know, and I stood in front of the microphone like in the in the audience and. I, I saw the row of students from my program sitting just in front of me. And um, yeah, it was, it was brutally hard, but it was that, it was that mm-hmm. integrity, you know, one of my core values is about integrity. And so, you know, I couldn't listen to whatever it was that was going on without, without owning that, without visibly being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, just because of the, you know, people feeling marginalized, not seen, not represented, etc. It just felt very important to do. And then, you know, and that was really what drove me to, to the to the coming out piece again about being a gender um, was, was just that I had so many people tell me that that was important to them, that they were grateful for that, that it helped them in some way. Um, and it's weird because you, I guess I still don't necessarily understand why I mean, I guess it's helpful to have anybody, ident- you know, but it just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's awkward to feel like you're in a position where you do have that influence for people. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. and that feels like a response. It, it's, it's a huge responsibility, which I didn't, didn't necessarily seek. You know, as I said, you know, my visibility has been because I care so much about the issues that I'm trying to advocate for. It's not that I am drawn to spotlights or want to (laughs) that's where I want to live it's not it's just that Mm -hmm. I care a lot about shit and that means I have to speak about them and honestly thank you for caring about shit and just being so honest about it it's just so refreshing to hear um so before we wrap up this part of the interview and we move on to the rapid fire round of questions um we do have one last question for you so what is the thing that you are most proud of in your career or even in your personal life and also something that you are looking forward to in the future? Yeah, so so that's a really good question. Like, you know, so so there are things that I'm sort of very it's one of those things again. It's like is it an externally facing you know proud of or is it an internal thing? You know, like I'm going to give you both just because, right. So the external objectively, you know, seeable thing would be the ADAPT clinic. I'm super proud of what we did there. Like I'm super proud that we did establish the world's first specialist psychiatric genetic counseling clinic and, and um, it's doing phenomenally well. And the counselors running it are exceptional humans and do a spectacular job and it it makes a difference for people. So yes, I'm proud of that. Um, But I think at a more personal level, I'm, proud of you know we we all got shit we all got baggage right (laughs) that you that you know from various things that you know growing up or life in general and I'm just really proud of the work that I've done to try to understand that and reconcile things so that I can use it to help others that's that's what I've been trying to do right I used to I used to, it took me years to go to therapy because I was like, you know, I work in mental health. I was like, you know, really, who am I to complain? 
like everybody that I'm seeing who needs psychiatric genetic counseling in our research studies, they need therapy way more than I do. You know, what, what sort of privileged asshole am I taking up? But I quickly realized that the people that I was interacting with in my studies, you know, I'm paying for counseling, like through a, a you know, and, and it, the way that I got around it for myself was it's not selfish because if I'm sorting my own shit out, I'm better able to help others. Right. Yeah. So um, and that is je- absolutely true. Like, I feel like the more I understand my own shit, my own experiences, uh, my own traumas, the better able I am to, um, you know, verbalize, articulate things in a way that's that's helpful and, and just be there for, for people in a way that is helpful. Um, so mm-hmm. so that's the more personal thing that I'm proud of. Yeah. And in, in the future, any plans? Yeah. Yeah, um, I, well, okay, so I think that for me, the things that I'm looking forward to in the future is just, I think at the moment, the genetic counselling profession, I'm going to make it about the genetic counselling profession, Mm. it's in a phase of development that is just, it's that hideous adolescence, I think, you know, where you're trying to figure out who you are and what matters to you and where you're going and, you know, I, I, yeah it's it's so it's in that really awkward gangly (laughs) like like I don't you know uncertain where it's going phase and so there's a lot of really sort of painful stuff being surfaced at the moment um which is critically important I'm so glad it's all being surfaced um but I what what I want for us in the future is that we we recognize our white cishet woman privileged founder background um and you know take from that what we can and move on and move on that's not where we need to stay in terms of development Mm -hmm. um you know for the benefit of everybody and everything literally um yeah so so i'm excited about where we're going i know it's painful and hideous right now perhaps but um, I think where we're going is a good place. I think that, um, you know, conflict breeds change and change is good uh, or should be good in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, no, I'm, I'm really optimistic about where we're headed as a profession in a, you know, to becoming uh, a place that's more genuinely open, accepting, diverse, you, you know, not just accepting, either celebratory of diversity in all its forms. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I think that there's a great deal to be optimistic about for the future there. Yeah. And the trainees that I'm currently working with are like literally case in point. That's one of the things that gives me the greatest pleasure, satisfaction, mm-hmm. fulfillment is just being able to help trainees figure out what they're doing, where they're going and looking at looking at them and their values. We're going to somewhere better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, we love that. Well, the last thing we do before we wrap up is the our, one of our favorite parts of the interview, the rapid fire round. Okay. So these are questions that you have not seen, but um, we're hoping to get some uh, authentic answers from you, but <laughs> we'll see. Um, so uh, we will just you know, rapid fire, ask you these things and we'll see what we get. Um, so okay. first question, I'm not good at thinking on my feet, just so you know. Well, that's... <laughs> That's totally fine. We usually end up okay. babbling on between them, but we'll try to make it quick. Um, <laughs> right. What is something that you would still like to learn or a skill that you're hoping to develop? Oh, I feel like um, we start with I, one. <laughs> no, 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 actually, I actually have an answer for that one. Um, I would, sorry, it's very pragmatic, but it's top of mind right now. Um, I've been kayaking a few times again recently and absolutely loved it. But I'd like Mm. to, um, I'd like, but basically, I'd like to um, do whatever certifications would allow me to get out and do it all by myself type thing, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So the next one, we might already know the answer to it. uh, But what is your favorite way to relax? (laughs) Is it the scuba diving? Well, (laughs) It, yeah, it absolutely is. But the thing is, you can't do that all the time. Like, so my, that's my absolute favorite. Like, my absolute favorite way to relax is not just any old scuba diving, but a cave dive. Um, mm. It's literally, it's my happy place. It's one of the few experience where, where I experience flow. You know, that, that thing where everything, 
slows down and you're just completely in the moment and aware of stuff without it being stressful and yeah it's the best thing ever um but yeah you it's not like i have caves that i can dive in in my backyard and do that every day so not yeah um so no i mean i go i go to the gym a lot um i really enjoy group um you know cross it, crossfit but i don't like calling it crossfit because the crossfit whole industry is a piece of shit uh, but that kind of concept of a workout i really enjoy yeah yeah so that that's that's relaxing all right and what is something well we might all also know the answer to this one. what is something people often get wrong about you Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you already do know this one. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am in fact not an extrovert at all. I score quite highly on every test I've ever done for introversion. Um, it's real. And the next one, what is the most helpful piece of advice that you've received or a mantra that you live by? Oh, um, in terms of pieces These are tough of questions. Oh, no, they're fun. I like them very much. Um, in terms of pieces of advice, I don't really have anything that comes to mind, but I do have uh, um, a mantra thing. Um, so actually, I have a tattoo on the underside of my arm here, and um, it says this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And for many people, I think they look at that and think it's all very <laughs> depressive or whatever, like, which I can see, but it doesn't, to me, it's about, it's about, yeah, so, so bearing in mind, I do have a fairly significant history of like depression and stuff and things have been bad as I disclosed during my um, presidential address. Um, So for me, it's about, yes, this too shall pass in the sense that when things are shit, you've been there before, it will be over. I know you don't know how yet, but it will be. And, um, but it's also about when things are really good, this will pass so fucking enjoy it like really internalize it breathe it in suck it up you know like lodge it in your memory make sure you're holding on to this um because because that that's what life is it's change right things things are good things are bad they're never constant and so it's really about making sure that i'm like present in those moments yeah beautiful and what are you most grateful for what am I most grateful for? I am incredibly grateful for having an environment in which I can make meaning and connection, mm. I think, in all sorts of different ways. Um, yeah, that's probably a bit vague, but it's it's the very, it, it's a very strong, strong and immediate response that I get mm. yeah yeah it seems consistent with everything you know you've been mm. saying saying today so it definitely makes sense um I think we've run through we had to cut a few out because we covered them <laughs> <laughs> um sorry about but that. but last 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 thing I promise um so are there any charities businesses organizations that you'd like to talk about and share with our listeners Yes, actually. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's been in the news in the US, has it? Have you been hearing about the so-called Indian residential schools? Yes. Yeah. So basically, um, you know, I know that in the US, Canada is often looked at as some sort of utopia. This is not the case. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Um yeah, so we have an absolutely appalling history and in fact ongoing relationship with um, our indigenous um, communities in Canada. Um, Canada has been um, found guilty basically by the UN of of genocide against indigenous people here. Mm -hmm. And um, the most recent shocks to the white settler community, at least, have been the findings of um, large numbers of unmarked graves of indigenous children in the school grounds of what were called Indian Indian residential schools, um, which were basically children were were removed forcibly from their families and um, moved into these schools, often run by Catholic churches in an attempt to assimilate assimilate them into white culture. So it's it's literally genocide, right? Um, And then while there, lots of the children died, they found a, a grave of 251 children in my province 
and then last week there was another of 751 um, mm. in Saskatchewan identified. And basically what we know is that there are dozens and dozens of these schools all across Canada and that Indigenous people have been talking forever through their oral histories and oral traditions about how their, you know, children have been missing, children have been missing, there are graves, there are unmarked graves. And now finally, the rest of us are catching up and catching on. So basically, we can expect that we will continue to hear these horrific stories about unmarked graves in the grounds of residential schools. And I'm using air quotes because these are not schools. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's a very long story, but basically to say that um, uh, a charity that I think is very well worth supporting right now is the Indian Residential School Survivor Society, mm -hmm. um, which is actually a Vancouver based group. But, um, you know, if you're based in the US, you've got lots of well, you, you will have similar organizations for your, you know, your own indigenous peoples. Um, and so I think that um, support of that kind of, of organization is a very important thing for us all to be more mindful of especially mm. now yeah mm. thank you for sharing that's extremely important and it's just oh. so tragic that yeah. it's taken so long to be recognized yeah mm -hmm. well after sorry that was a bit of a know, yeah no no <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's so important yeah um, it is. but we have talked about so many incredible things this has been just just such an amazing conversation um which I think we knew uh, when we invited you on the podcast, we were so excited to to have such a fruitful conversation with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for coming on and being honest with us, being vulnerable and uh, just sharing your story. I think so many people mm -hmm. are going to get a lot out of it. I know we have. Well, it's been really fun talking with you, as I said it, you know, to you before we started this whole thing. Um, so spoiler, they sent me some of the questions in advance. Um, but when I looked, <laughs> but when I looked at them, that they were they were so interesting. Like they're actually useful things to talk about. And um, mm. so yeah, no, it's been really fun being forced to think about these things and to talk about them with you. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well. Cheers. Hi. Yeah. Cheers. Indeed. Cheers. <laughs> If you'd like to nominate someone to be on our podcast, please reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram at DNA or our website, roseandna.com. And in the meantime, be well, be empowered, and cheers! cheers.